Christian Fellowship Church. Happy Mother's Day to the moms and the moms watching online. And for those of you wondering who that guy was that was just up here, that was Nathan, actually. That was, that was Nathan. You know, he's beard optional now. I don't know. Well, I want to invite you to pray with me uh, again and ask that the Lord would use this time to invigorate us, uh, do a work in us to prepare us for uh, anything that awaits us outside these doors. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you for your grace. We're thankful for your word. We pray that as we look at it now in the next few moments, uh, that you would use it to shape us, fashion us, prepare us, equip us for this wilderness journey, Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, recently, I was uh, just this past weekend talking with my cousin who's in the Air Force, moves a lot, and he's moving to another state now. Uh, and because he's not able to get there as often as he can, he's got to house hunt like through FaceTime. And so his realtor is going through the house, like showing him things. And it's harder to buy a house when you can't walk through it on your own. That same day, I talked to my, my stepfather who talked about his recent car purchase. Same thing, a different state, and he just had to go off of pictures, and you just kind of cross your fingers, right? It's hard to invest in something that's expensive without checking it out first. Uh, you would not do that, I hope, with a job. Just accept the job before finding out what's the pay, what are the benefits, who's the employer, uh, what's the job description, you check it out first. You don't just dive in. This is why we do premarital uh, counsel with couples. We don't just dive into marriage. Why? Why don't we do pre-dating? I just came up with an idea. That'd be, that'd be cool, actually, a pre-dating. Don't get me going. But Dating, you can, okay, we break up, okay, let's, let's go again, let's break up again, right? I mean, it could be annoying, but it's not as devastating as the breakup in a marriage. And so we are more careful before we commit to things that are weighty. And oftentimes, when we come to Christ by saying a prayer, or after being emotionally moved from a stirring sermon, or a song around a campfire, or whatever the setting may be, um, we can jump into something without really reckoning with what this is. And we get heartbroken when people walk away from the faith, and they serve so well, and they preach so well, and they wrote such awesome worship songs. But were they really in, though? Because oftentimes when we point to, wow, they were so faithful, what we point to is skill and talent and gifting. What was difficult to see was, did they really get what they signed up for? And what the book of Numbers is communicating repeatedly is, you don't have to jump into this journey. If you want to go out there, you want to go back to Egypt, but if you're going to be in this journey, it's going to be a certain way. And God is going to be at the center of it. And it is weighty. It's a matter of life and death. And when you read through it, and you see things that God does, and it makes you go, whoa, I mean, like, like that's strict. That's a sign of us not getting it. We, we are still holding to this thing a little more flippantly than we should. We should get the weightiness of this thing. 
And when we do, we would get how desperately we need to depend on God to make it. Because your skills and your talents won't do it. You could just be in, next in the line, the long line of apostates, people who walk away. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 15 as we take a look at what this is that we are saying we're a part of as covenant uh, Christians with the Lord. And here's what I'd like to do. In this first section, it's a little long, but I do want to read it. We're just going to be in chapter 15 today. I do want to read it. But as we read it, I'm going to give you something to look for. It's the point of this whole first section, verses 1 through 21. And I want you to look for a repeated phrase, a phrase that's going to come out a few different times, in fact, five times total, that helps us remember what the point of this is. Otherwise, we get lost in all these sacrifices and burnt offerings and how to do it. And this repeated phrase is key to helping us understand why this is here. Okay, starting in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that you are to inhabit, which I am giving you, and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering or at your appointed feast to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord, then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil, and you shall offer with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice, a quarter of a hin of wine for the drink offering for each lamb. Or for a ram you shall offer for a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a third of a hin of oil. And for the drink offering you shall offer a third of a hin of wine, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And when you offer a bull as a burnt offering or sacrifice to fulfill a vow or, a peace, or for peace offerings to the Lord, then one shall offer with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with half a hin of oil. And you shall offer for the drink offering half a hin of wine as a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Thus it shall be done for each bull or ram or for each lamb or young goat, as many as you offer. So shall you do with each one, as many as there are. Every native Israelite shall do these things in this way, in offering a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger is sojourning with you or anyone is living permanently among you and he wishes to offer a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, he shall do as you do. For the assembly there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generations. You and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord one law and one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. What was the phrase? A pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay. Lots of details. This animal, that animal, this measurement, that drink, that liquid. Why? A pleasing aroma to the Lord. Why? A pleasing aroma to the Lord. Who should do it? The Israelite for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. What about the people that are not Israelite, but they're in the journey too? They're sort of grafted in, in a sense. 
What about them? Yeah, the same things. They relate to the Lord the same way. Why? For a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, of course, that's in a you know, metaphorical sense. It's not that God is up there like, man, it just it's, it kind of smells up here. Would you light some fragrances? It just really pleases me, and then I'll let you in the land. No, what pleases him is that they are operating the sacrifices the way he asked them to, which remind them, you are not getting this land on your own merit or on your own strength. Something had to die so that you can live. And not just live out in the wilderness, but enjoy life in the land. And so there's all this bloodshed with all these animals and all these offerings that in different ways represent this atonement and this redemption and this relationship that they have with God. Why is this here? Well, remember last time, they didn't do so well trying to get in the land. They sent in the spies, they came back. Ten of the twelve were like, forget it, forget it. We'd rather be in Egypt, we'd rather die in the wilderness. They weren't ready to go into the land. So then God is angry, displays his anger. There's consequences. And then they overcompensate and they say, okay, we'll take the land. And it's like, no, man, you have to stay in relationship with God and God will do what it takes to get you where you're supposed to go. What God is doing is, let's go back to the sacrifices, guys. Let's go back to the things that you're supposed to be about. It's not a chapter on practicing sword work, how to sharpen their spears. Let's get those sling men ready. Here's how to make a bow and arrows. It's a sacrifice on how to please the Lord. And the Lord is pleased with us when we approach Him on the back of sacrifice, not on the back of I can do it. And so he recenters them, reorients them. This whole thing is about me. You're not going to get in the land unless you recognize that. We know that because he tells them here, this is for when you get to the land. In verse 2, when you come into the land, these are the sacrifices. This is the center of everything for you. Israelites and everyone with the Israelites. But not everyone makes it. Some people, they don't want that to be the center. They want something else to be the center, and they're killed, they are ousted. They don't make it. But if that's their center, they make it. Verse 17 is important. The Lord spoke to Moses, 17 to 21. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you, again, this is prep to make it, to go all the way. When you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution, like a contribution from the threshing floor, so, that, so, you, so shall you present it. And some of your first, first of your dough shall, you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. Continuing to 22, but in all these rules that I've laid out, as you're going into the land... Remember, there's consequences for sinning, but he makes a caveat for sinning unintentionally. He says, if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses, from the day that the Lord gave commandment and onward through your generations, then if it was done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering Guess what for? 
a pleasing aroma to the Lord. There in verse 24. With its grain offering and its drink offering according to the rule, and one male goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation. Remember, one person messed up. A bull is being killed, a large animal, the whole congregation's involved, and the whole congregation, verse 25, shall be forgiven because it was a mistake. Doesn't that, does that feel contradictory to you? We normally don't ask forgiveness, we don't always ask for forgiveness for a mistake. It's like, we can dodge the forgiveness thing because I didn't mean it. And God's saying, you still transgressed, even if you didn't mean it. And they've brought their offering, verse 25, a food offering to the Lord and their sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. And all the congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven. And the stranger who sojourns among them because the whole population was involved in the mistake. You don't come to the Lord and say, I didn't know that some of my sins were sins, so I'm not going to confess those. No, you found out they were sin and you confessed them, even though when you did them, you didn't know they were unbiblical. Now we might say, well, wow, that's really strict. For sins of a mistake, there still has to be the sacrifice. What's the opposite of sinning by mistake? Sinning on purpose. Like, yeah, I know that's the rule. I don't care. If a sacrifice is needed and the entire congregation has to be forgiven for a sin of oops, a mistake, what do you think the consequence is for, yeah, I know that's the rule. The whole congregation is aware of it as opposed to this one, and they're like, hey, stop that. And you're like, I don't care. I don't care what the people sitting next to me say. They're hypocrites. They have sin. And you do it anyway? That's sinning with a high hand. It's the opposite of sinning unintentionally. It continues in verse 27. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering. Again, bloodshed. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally for him who is native, among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. No matter your background, where you're from, the rules are the same. But the person, here's the opposite, who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. If you're wondering, why did I start the sermon with people who kind of sign up to this follow God thing and then don't make it? Because that's what this passage is about. You're walking along and then suddenly, you know what? I know that's the rule and I don't care. And God's posture towards someone like that isn't, okay, well, I'll give you a pass on that one, but can you just obey the other ones? It's like, you're not a follower. He makes room and there's grace for, oops, ah, I messed up, oh, I didn't know, ah, I didn't realize. Okay, there's, there's room for that. Why? Not because it's small, because the person's heart isn't, I revile you, God. It was, I want to follow God, I just, oops, please help me. Why help me? Because I still want to follow you. The reviler is like, I know that's God's law, but pfft, I don't care about God. Well, how can you follow God? You don't care, you don't care what he says, care what he thinks. 
That incongruency is God is saying it doesn't work. You can't be a part of this group that follows me and not follow me and get benefits from the group. That doesn't work. Then we get a passage where some people go straight to this paragraph, ignore the rest of what we just covered. You're like, wow, he spent his Mother's Day. Isn't it supposed to be a rip-roaring sermon? He just read a lot of sacrifices. Because if we don't read this paragraph in context, we lose it. You might be in conversation with somebody who walked away from the faith and talked about how ridiculous God is. And they might point to this passage to point to that. Look at this paragraph, starting in verse 32. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Remember in the previous paragraph, the congregation may or may not be aware of what's going on. They're aware here. It's the Sabbath day, day of rest, and he's gathering sticks. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Harsh, strict, unreasonable. You have to take into account the entire previous paragraph. Was this a, oops, I didn't know sticks weren't allowed? Well, if it were, all they would have to do is bring a bull and he'd be good, right? Well, if it's not that category, what category is it? Sinning with a high hand. I know it's the Sabbath. People that notice him. Hey, man, you can't gather sticks because you can't make a fire. And in, back in Exodus, God made that plain. Don't make fires on the Sabbath day or you'll be punished by death. And there were some things that were punishable by death. Murder different types of adultery or incest, idolatry. Not everything was a capital punishment, but some things were, and Sabbath breaking was one of them. And God got specific. Don't make fires. He got specific. Now you can imagine congregants coming around and pointing out that specific rule. You cannot do that. I don't care. I'm a little chilly. My wife wants a fire. It's story time at my house, whatever, you know. I'm, we're going to cook. He's going to make a fire. He's not gathering sticks uh, because he's a stick collector. He's going to make a fire so he can work. And he's going to work on the Sabbath. Any other day, this is what you're supposed to do. On this day, you're supposed to not do it. The law is clear. He's probably, I'm imagining, reminded by people, I don't think the entire congregation is like, let's wait till he picks up the third stick and then we'll get him. They don't want to deal with this stuff. Dude, stop what you're doing. I don't care. I don't think you have to use much imagination to get there because that's what the previous paragraph was just about. This is an example of what Moses was just talking about. Someone who sins with a high hand. Now why did they have to bring him before Moses? Well, he didn't make the fire yet. Ooh, see, that's, that's not clear. If we caught him making the fire, it's like, well, the law's clear. We got him getting ready to make the fire. Maybe that's why they had to bring it to Moses and find out. 
And God is like, he already reviled me in his heart, didn't he? He already was like, I don't care. I'm getting sticks. I'm doing this fire, even if he didn't get to actually make the fire. Maybe the congregation tried saving him. Hey, stop. They grabbed him before he can actually make the fire, and they're like, maybe we saved him, right? God's like, no. He already sinned with a high hand. And the reason why he's put to death is because what God is teaching them is for you to make it all the way, you have to be dependent on me. And when you're not dependent on me, you go rogue. You're, you're, you're independent, you're self-sustaining, you read self-help books, right? The start of your day isn't, God, please help me. The start of your day is look at yourself in the mirror and convince yourself you're, gonna, you're a warrior. That's not Christianity. Christianity is I will not make it through this day, let alone this life, if God doesn't help me. The Sabbath was created exactly for that. This is a perfect example. Because the Sabbath was to communicate, you don't get by by producing. So one day a week, you're going to just do no work, no labor, and trust that with an entire day of your calendar of the week missing, where you're not producing, you'll still be taken care of. Why? Because it's not your job, it's not your skills, it's not your hobbies, it's not your education, your intelligence, your income that gets you by. You think we don't think that? We're not tempted to think that? When's the last time you took a day and just stopped and didn't peek at the emails? Now, I'm not saying the Sabbath is binding today, like we should stone you if we catch you checking emails, but the principle, I think, still remains. Work hard six days, and the principle of taking one day to say, God, I don't, I'm not, I don't manufacture my life. You do. Well, the point here isn't the Sabbath necessarily. The point is sinning with a high hand on things that are clear, especially the things that communicate dependence upon God. That we are completely dependent on God if we're going to make it. And if we're not dependent on Him, we're not going to make it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to uh, Hebrews 10 really quickly because I'm going to show you the New Testament equivalent of this stick collector dude. The New Testament equivalent, the author of Hebrews makes clear. Hebrews chapter 10, so this is way toward the back of your Bibles before you get to the small books of James and First and Second Peter. Hebrews chapter 10. And he makes it really clear. Listen, this is not, this shouldn't scare you. This is not, oops, you accidentally became an apostate. There's no, there's no accidental apostates, okay? But it is serious. And he says in verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately, see? It's the high hand. It's I don't care. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. See, he's channeling this passage. It's the whole couple paragraphs on sacrifices, then sinning intentionally or unintentionally. And he's saying there is no sacrifice for sins. None of those sacrifices for the Old Testament Saints counted if they just sinned deliberately, and the same for us. 
Verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. See, what is a person who reviles God but who still holds a church membership? God's not like, oh, there's, you're still a member of a church on paper. No, you're an adversary of God. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In this case, the entire congregation pretty much saw him collecting sticks. How much worse punishment do you think, New Testament Christian, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? How can the sacrifice that you trample cover you? And again, by trample, he doesn't mean, ah, I messed up this week, I'm confessing that in my growth group. He's not talking about that. He's talking about a deliberate uh, about face on God. Verse 30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Still want to sign up? It is a weighty matter. It is a serious thing. I can't, if you're in here this morning and you're not a believer, you're not in, you're still on the outside, you still enjoy Egypt, I can't convince you. And I'm not going to stand up here and go, oh, come on, it's fun. Parenting is never easier. Marriage is the best. Christians are so cool to hang out with. It's not about those things. The center of this entire thing is dependence on God. When you reach your limit and you realize you don't have what it takes to be holy, to be good, and you can't convince yourself you're good, God invites you to learn His goodness. And it's that sacrifice of Jesus Christ that allows you to be in a relationship with God. And He will take you there. He will take you all the way. We're going to mess up along the way. But we recognize God, I need your grace and I need your help. And this is why we are a prayerful people. We're not just a productive people. And many churches, I think, are spinning their wheels, just creating programs, you know, cranking out things that we do in the community. And that's not bad, but can you lose the center? And the center of it is dependence upon God. I love, I love this. At first, I was like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. But, I mean, as I reflected on it, this weighty, holy God of vengeance toward his enemies, warning toward his people, wants you to walk this line, he gives them the most practical help that you could think of. I remember one time when I was a kid, my dad wanted me to remember to obey and he tied a ribbon, a literal ribbon on my finger. I had to wear it around with my friends like, what's that? Uh, shut up. There's a ribbon on my finger. He tied it like a bow. Every time you look down in your hand and you see that ribbon, remember. I don't know if he was reading Numbers 15 that morning, but that's basically what he's channeling. Check it out. Verse 37, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. 
and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart, not to follow after your own eyes, which you were inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. You know how you become a reviler? You first start with forgetfulness. You forget how desperately you need God's grace, how desperately you need God's strength. You start getting a little more confident in your own abilities and in your own strength, and one day you end up realizing, I don't need God. Why am I going through the whole charade? And then you walk away, and then everybody else is like, but they were so talented. That might have been the problem. And out of all this weightiness, God is like so little tassels on your garments, blue ones. So when you look at it, you remember holiness. The one item of furniture that was covered in blue was the ark. The one place you saw blue curtains in all of Israel was the temple. You saw blue on the high priest's garment. It's holiness, it's royalty, it's divinity. And he's like, this holiness is not supposed to remain in the temple. You all are holy. You're different. And you're dependent on me, the Holy One. So tie these little tassels on the corners like you're surrounded by it. One, two, three, four. Little blue tassels to remind you when you look at it, I'm God's. I'm God's. Okay, there's this problem in front of me and I feel like I can tackle it myself. No, I can't. But God's got it. I'm going to spend time just figuring this out. Actually, let me spend time praying. And then figuring it out. I mean, they still have to go in the land and they have to fight. They have swords. God's not like, no swords, just stand there and watch me do it. No, you do it. But do it recognizing I am at the center of it. And he gives them a physical symbol, like a bow on the finger, to remind them. Well, what's the application there? Well, I think in one sense, we need to recognize that there, there really is no New Testament equivalent to these blue tassels. Uh, and there are some abiblical ways that we can apply it. Right? Unbiblical would mean against what God says. Abiblical just means, well, God doesn't say it. It's in the realm of figure it out. And so uh, you may have things that remind you. Uh, and I know I poke fun at these things sometimes because I think sometimes it's a little too much maybe, but uh, you know, your refrigerator magnet with a verse on it, a bookmark with a, with a verse on it, a reminder. I don't think I'm against those things, and I don't think we should be against those things. They're not holy unto themselves, but if it actually reminds you every time you walk in the kitchen, the post-it note stuck to your dashboard in the car with that verse, and it actually reminds you to start your day, start your commute with that in mind, great! Build in little reminders to keep your focus. Right? Worship music. And for many cross throughout the the church the cross has been a symbol of reminder of the sacrifice you might want want one at least around that's not like a gilded shiny cross but one that's a little rugged maybe some violence on it to remind you that this costs something God also builds in reminders in the church like baptism and communion those are things that we look at and see together 
Every time we take communion, there's a visible reminder. Do this in what? Remembrance. Remember. Remember. Marriage is a reminder. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians, it's a picture of the gospel. When we think about marriage, talk about marriage, look at Christian marriages, are in a Christian marriage, it's a constant reminder. Wow, it's really hard to love my spouse. I know. <laughs> That's how God explains how difficult we are with him oftentimes. And his answer is grace. When we gather together and we sing songs, why do we sing songs sometimes that are really old? It helps us remember Christianity didn't start this year. <laughs> we stand in a long line of Christians, and the old songs help us remember that we sing as a group of people, and some are witnesses that have gone on before us. But these are ways that we can build in reminders. Everything from communion to post-it notes and everything in between, build in little things in your life to keep you focused. Because if we don't, and we just depend on just the Sunday, you know, the Sunday morning thing, we need a lot more than that. He didn't say, when you gather together for the sacrifices, that's a good enough reminder. He wanted something daily, right? Something they can look at all the time. Especially if you have many friendships with unbelievers. Especially if you work in a place where it's mostly unbelievers. And you're constantly surrounded, like you're in Babylon. You know, you're in exile. This is not home. We're strangers here. You need to all the more build in reminders. Start stoking some of those friendships with Christians around you so you can help each other in this remembering thing, right? And I think we get that, especially from the emphasis in this passage on the, the, the congregation. The congregation went after this guy and he didn't care. And we need to be a kind of people that help each other not collect sticks, so to speak, and point to those tassels to, rem to remind each other of the center of this whole thing. And it is a weighty thing. We don't want to start a slide where we start with, for start with forgetfulness, then start leaning on our own strength, and then eventually revile God. But if we remember, keep God at the center. There is no army, there is no mountain, there are no giants that can stop the expansion of God's kingdom and the work that he wants to do through you in this life to the end on his grace. Let's pray. Fathers,